0: Well, good morning. Summer is here, isn't it? And uh, when we think about summer, we think about uh, maybe going on a a trip, a family vacation. Maybe you wish you were going on vacation. And uh, it's interesting that we have different ideas of what constitutes a good vacation. For some people, it's headed to the beach. You love the sound of the waves, the sand between your toes, the tropical weather. For others of you, you prefer a lake house. You enjoy the calm of the lake, uh, maybe some boating, some fishing. Some of you may prefer uh, a mountain cabin. You like the temperatures a little bit cooler. You enjoy waking up and seeing views of those mountain peaks, maybe a chance to do some hiking, see some wildlife. And so I'm interested uh, what you prefer the most. So how many of you, your ideal vacation would be going to the beach? How many beach people do we have? Okay. Okay. How many of you would prefer uh, the lake house? Okay. How many of you mountain cabin? It's pretty evenly split. I asked my kids this question last night, and each of them had a different answer. So uh, we're we're pretty evenly split here. Well, I've got some good news for some of you. This summer, we're going to spend our Sundays on a mountain, on the slopes of a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, studying Jesus' most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through has been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. It's fascinating that Christians and non-Christians alike have admired the moral and ethical teachings found in this sermon. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi said, if all the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount were consistently followed, the world would be transformed. Just consider some of what Jesus teaches in this sermon. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not judge. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Go the extra mile. Give the shirt off your back. Why has this sermon made such a profound impact on people from all different backgrounds and beliefs? Why has its significance endured throughout history? That's what we're going to discover this summer. But first, I want us to see what leads up to this sermon. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 23. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. One of the major themes in the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus traveling, he's preaching, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he heals a lot of people, which attracts large crowds. When Jesus begins to give this Sermon on the Mount, there are two groups of people who are present, the crowds and the disciples. Throughout the Gospels, the crowds represent those people who were interested in Jesus, but they weren't necessarily committed to Jesus. The disciples represent a smaller group of people, those who were followers of Jesus. They submitted their lives to his teachings and to his way. And so, although the Sermon on the Mount is directed to his disciples, Jesus invites the crowds to lean in and listen to what life is like in the kingdom. And it got me thinking, you know, that's a lot like a church service. We invite anyone to come and hear the radical, life-changing message of Jesus. Certainly, there are parts of our worship service that are designed for disciples, such as when we share in communion. But like Jesus' teaching, we recognize that every time we gather together, we have crowds and disciples in the same room. And our prayer and our hope is that you would move from being part of the crowd to being part of the disciples. Because everyone here is a disciple or a potential disciple. It begins by Jesus going up on a mountainside. The hill was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this large hillside provided ample room for people to gather and to hear Jesus' voice carry well. He sat down, which was the common posture for teachers in that day in schools and synagogues, and we're told that Jesus began to teach them. And what follows is a sermon that in our Bibles takes around 10 to 15 minutes to read. It's the longest recorded sermon in the Bible. But it's not a transcript of everything Jesus said that day. Most likely it's a summary of the themes that Jesus taught that day and the themes that represented his preaching as he traveled throughout the region. And you would think that a sermon that's universally loved and appreciated would be equally understood and agreed upon. John Stott said, the sermon is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. That's true. One scholar, Craig Blomberg, he cites a survey that shares 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Now don't worry, we're not gonna discuss all 36 of those, but I do want to share with you four common ways that people misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. First, some people read the sermon as a model for social progress, right? Some people read the sermon and they look at it as a blueprint for social progress. And listen, that's not entirely wrong. Again, consider what Jesus teaches. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give the shirt off your back. But that does not represent the values of our culture or our world, does it? Our world values the opposite. Our world says, Hate your enemies. Despise those who persecute you. Curse those who curse you. Strike back. Do only what's required. Give as little as possible. Surely, don't be overly generous. And I would just simply ask, how's that working out for us? We see violence in schools. We demonize people who think differently than we do. We seek revenge and retaliate in order to make ourselves feel better. So clearly, our world would be a much better place if people lived according to the Sermon on the Mount. And as people are transformed by the gospel and as they live like followers of Jesus, the world should be better. The problem is, is simply living according to the Sermon on the Mount, whether individually or as entire nations, it's not going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. As transformational as these teachings are, without the grace and forgiveness that's received through Christ, it's impossible, it's, it's unattainable on our own. So as we read this, we need to keep in mind that it's a message for the disciples, Again, we read in verse 1 that that Jesus went up on a mountainside, and his disciples came to him. The crowds were present, but he's addressing those who have been redeemed, not not secular governments. The the Sermon on the Mount is not a political manifesto for world peace. It's not a manual for a well-ordered government. As if Jesus is suggesting that by loving your enemies, he's saying there's no need for police officers or armies or jails. Second, some people read this sermon as legalistic obedience. The idea here is that these teachings are given to us as a set of moral and ethical teachings that we're to follow perfectly in order to be in right standing with God. And the truth is, Jesus does call us to obedience. But our obedience comes as the result of a heart that's been changed and made alive. Our obedience comes as the result of of having new desires and new ways of thinking because we've been born again. In other words, we obey because we've been saved, not in order to be saved. If you. Look at how Matthew begins his gospel in chapter one. It says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Listen, he doesn't save you because you're perfect. He saves you because you have sin. Sinclair Ferguson says that some people view this sermon as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt and the fewest possible chapters. And it can feel like that. When you read this, here's what Jesus says, now go get your act together. And we read it and we think, it's impossible. I, I can't do this. It's like the movie Elf. You, you remember Buddy the Elf, and, and he's making toys in Santa's workshop. But, but he's human, and he's working with all these other elves, and, and he's building as fast as he can. He's trying as hard as he can, but, but no matter how hard he tries, he can't keep up with the pace. He can't keep up with the quota of the other elves, and so what does he do? He feels shame and embarrassment and guilt, and he runs away because it's an impossible standard. And some people, they decide, well, well, we need to change the standard. And so they start selectively applying which parts they're supposed to obey and which parts they aren't. And they treat obedience to some arbitrary standard as the criteria for being right with God. And when some people read the Sermon on the Mount, they, they look at it as if it's making toys in the workshop. They say, there's no way we'll be able to live up to this, so, so, so let's change the standard. That's not how we should read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a call to legalistic obedience. Third, some people read the sermon as law designed to drive us to grace. And this was the view that was popularized by the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He read the Sermon on the Mount as an exposition of the law that was designed to crush us and then lead us to the gospel. And again, there's some truth in this. One of the functions of the law is to show us our sinfulness, to show us how we can't live up to God's holy standards, and so we need a Savior. The problem is this view doesn't read the Sermon on the Mount as teachings for Christians today. It only sees it as an impossible standard designed for us to see our sinfulness, for us to feel bad for ourselves, and then run to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. In this sermon, Jesus is showing his followers the way they should live, a way of living that adheres to Jesus' teaching and his way of life, a way of living that's characteristic of the kingdom of God, Jesus really expected his followers to live this way. Fourth, some people read this sermon as being only future focused. That there are some who read this sermon as entirely describing what's coming in the kingdom reign of Jesus when he creates a new heavens and a new earth. And there is a not yet uh, uh, aspect to when it comes to the kingdom that we're going to look at in a moment. But the problem with this view is that Jesus clearly meant this sermon for the people who were sitting right in front of him. He was teaching his disciples, if you belong to me, here's how I want you to live. And so what's the proper understanding of the sermon? Here it is in a sentence. The Sermon on the Mount details the kingdom way of life followers of Jesus are invited to live here and now. The Sermon on the Mount details the kingdom way of life. Followers of Jesus are invited to live here and now. Let's look at that a little more closely. First, it's about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus ends the sermon in Matthew 7, 21, talking about the kingdom. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verses 21 through 23 goes on to talk about how people will enter the kingdom. We mentioned one of the themes of Matthew's gospel and something that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is what Matthew refers as the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is introduced in Matthew 4.23. And he went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming what? What? the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't tell us to build the kingdom, to make the kingdom, or create the kingdom. He tells us how to receive the kingdom. He shows us how to enter into the kingdom. And once we enter into the kingdom, he shares with us the Sermon on the Mount to teach us how to live as citizens of that kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the way of Jesus. Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount details the life of Jesus, the, the yoke of Jesus. It represents the teachings of Jesus. The way of Jesus, you want to know? Read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is for followers of Jesus. We, we talked about how he was teaching his disciples. T- to live up to the standards of the, kingdom, of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible without a heart that has been redeemed by Christ. It's impossible on our own. If you try to apply Jesus' teachings without receiving him as Lord and Savior, it's futile. You cannot behave like Christ until you belong to Christ. Those who don't love the king cannot live like the king. And this sermon is for today. The Sermon on the Mount is for today. Theologians talk about how the kingdom of God is already but not yet. It's already, but not yet. So, in one sense, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is, is future. In another sense, the kingdom of God is here right now. So, when, when, when God created this world, this age, this world that we live in, begun. And, and this world will end when Jesus returns to establish a new heavens and a new earth. But when Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived a sinless life and he was buried, crucified, rose again, the Spirit was poured out, that ushered in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is a kingdom without end. So we're living in this this already but not yet. The kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of God will not be fully consummated until Jesus returns to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And so that means that the kingdom is not only future-focused, it's here and now. And that means that the kingdom values in the Sermon on the Mount is the life that Jesus invites us to today. And as we study this incredible sermon this summer, I think the key to living out the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Uh, The message paraphrases it this way. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. When Jesus refers to my yoke in this passage, he's using a metaphor to describe his teachings and his way of life that he offers to his followers. In the agricultural context of the time, a yoke was a wooden frame that was used to join two animals together, like two oxen. The yoke allowed them to share the load and to work together efficiently. And by inviting people to take his yoke upon themselves, Jesus is offering an invitation to follow him, to learn from him, to join in his mission. Jesus' yoke represents his teachings. Jesus' yoke represents the Sermon on the Mount. It's his way of life. It's, it's his values, the principles that he embodies. And unlike the burdensome and legalistic religious practices of the time, Jesus assures his followers that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, Which means that Jesus' teachings and the path that he calls his followers to walk, they're not meant to be a heavy burden. They're not meant to be a source of weariness. Instead, they bring rest and spiritual refreshment and a deep sense of fulfillment. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner, he says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. And so as we journey this summer through this sermon, the way we take on the easy yoke is by leaning on Jesus. We don't do it in our own strength. We don't do it by by trying to work harder. We do it by following the way of Jesus. And by doing so, we find that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So as we read this sermon, I want to give you kind of three takeaways, three uh, applications to keep in mind as we study. First, Jesus is the great teacher, so learn from him. Matthew 5 verse 2 says that Jesus began to teach them. The disciples addressed Jesus as rabbi, which means teacher, And there were a lot of rabbis, a lot of teachers, but only one Jesus. No one ever taught like Jesus. And so this summer, I want you to set aside what you think you know. No matter how many times you've read the Sermon on the Mount, even if you think you you know it all and you've got it all figured out, I want you to just set aside, sit at the feet of Jesus, and allow Jesus to teach you. Think of the greatest teacher you've ever had. Maybe it was a school teacher. Maybe it was a coach. What made them so great? I can guarantee it wasn't because they taught you information or you just learned a lot of facts from them. What made them a great teacher was the impact they had on your life, that they caused you to think in new ways, that they they impacted how passionate you were about a certain subject. So allow Jesus' teachings to impact Your life. Second, Jesus is the example, so follow him. This sermon is the way of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' yoke, his teachings, his way of life. How do we take on the easy yoke? I think for most of us, we need to slow down. Dallas Willard, he writes, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Mark Comer wrote a book that was uh, based from Dallas Willard's uh, quote there. It's called the, the, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in that book, he says, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you'll notice that Jesus was never in a hurry. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus heads off to Jerusalem, but he doesn't get there till chapter 19. And on his way to Jerusalem, he goes through Jericho, and he looks up in a tree, and he sees a man, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to stay at your house today. I want to eat with you, Zac. Ne- never hurried. Even after his good friend Lazarus died, Jesus waited a few days before he went. I love the story where the disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and, and a storm comes, and their boats rocking back and forth, and disciples are panicking, and, and where's Jesus? He's below deck sleeping. Unhurried, unbothered. So here's what I want to ask you What do you need to eliminate in your life in order to slow down? What do you need to get rid of? Is your life overprogrammed? Are you involved in too many activities? Are you binging too many TV shows? Are you constantly working long hours and long days and, and you're trying to, to, to get the next big deal, the, the pursuit of money is consuming you? What do you need to eliminate in order to slow down? And second, what do you need to embrace in your life in order to slow down? What do you need to eliminate? What do you need to embrace? Perhaps you need to embrace Sabbath. where you take that day and you block out your calendar. No appointments, no meetings. This is a day where I'm going to rest. I'm going to be in the presence of God. I'm going to be in the presence of my family. And, and I'm going I'm to slow down. Perhaps you need to embrace silence and solitude. We live in a world that's always on. There's always noise. People go to sleep with the TV on. They're always listening to music. Listening to audiobooks and podcasts at one and a half or two times speed. And our, and our life is, is like RPMs where we're always in the red, and eventually we're going to burn out. Our pace produces anxiety and irritability, elevated heart rates, and it's not the way of Jesus. Learn to embrace silence and solitude. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus would get up early. He would go up to a mountainside and pray. Third, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to remember that Jesus is Lord, so worship him. The Sermon on the Mount ends with this in Matthew seven twenty eight. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of the teachers of the law. The reason this sermon cuts so deep and carries so much weight is because of the one who delivers it. Jesus is more than a great teacher. He's more than a great example. He teaches with one who has authority, unlike any other teacher. Why? Because he is Lord. And so our response should not just be amen. It should not just be, that's great. It should not just be, oh, that's insightful, but it should be worship. I praise you. I submit to you. I read a story recently about a bicycle race in India. And the object of the race was to go the shortest distance possible within a specified time. At the start of the race, everyone queued up at the line. And when the gun sounded, all of the bikes, as best as they could, stayed put. Racers were disqualified if they tipped over or one of their feet touched the ground. And so they would inch forward just enough to keep the bike balanced. And when the time was up and another gun sounded, the person who had gone the furthest was the loser and the person who was the closest to the starting line was the winner. So can you imagine getting into that race and not understanding how the race works? When the race starts, you pedal as hard and as fast as you possibly can. You're out of breath, you're sweating, You're excited because the other racers, they're all the way back at the starting line. You're going to break the record. You think this is amazing. Don't let up. Push harder, stronger, longer. And you hear the gun that sounds the end of the race, and you're excited because you are unquestionably the winner. Except that you are unquestionably the loser because you misunderstood how the race was won. See, there are a lot of people who misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. It's not legalistic obedience. It's not unattainable law. It's not only focused on the future. It's not some manifesto for social progress. But everything changes when we understand that it details the kingdom way of life that followers of Jesus are invited to live here and now. It's the world's greatest sermon. And it flips so many of our assumptions upside down. And we're going to dive in verse 3 next Sunday. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for this incredible sermon. We thank you that you have given us the way of Jesus. And God, the way that we live this is not by trying harder ourselves. It's by submitting our lives to you but by taking upon the yoke of Jesus, the the easy yoke, the light burden. So God, as our lives are surrendered to you, as we lean upon the strength of Jesus, God, I pray that we would begin to live the values of the kingdom here and now as we experience what life is like in your kingdom without end. May we reflect the characteristics of the kingdom, the kingdom that those who have submitted to you as Lord and Savior, are are citizens of that kingdom. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who would say uh, they're not disciples, but they're just part of the crowd, I pray that today, as they listen in on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, God, I pray that they would say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to be made new. I want a fresh start a heart that has been reborn. God, thank you. Thank you that you have made a way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.